This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Welcome to Navarra Live on the first Friday evening of 2024. And of course, um, there is no one I would prefer to start off my Friday evenings in 2024 um, with than Aaron Bastani. Aaron, Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Michael. I don't quite believe you on that count, but uh, it's good to be back. The goats are on Goat Friday. That's not my words. <laughs> that's, the, that's the description that somebody called it to me. Um, and also shout out to Juan, Michael. Um, <clears throat> just picking up a scription here in Portsmouth. He said, I love your shows. I love Navarra mm. Media. So you, Fox, and all the rest of the team on video and elsewhere in Navarra doing a great job. We are reaching far and wide. Long may it continue in 2024, Michael. The new, um, I was going to tell you before we went live, actually, the new deputy manager at Pure Gym, Bermondsey, is also a big Navarra Media fan. So we are, we are spreading far and wide. It's good to see. Of course, we could always spread further. Um, so do please share this show. Tell your friends about Navarra Media. We always want more people tuning in. And we have a big show tonight coming up later, how the establishment are in denial about the dire state of the UK housing market. A really unbelievable clip from the BBC this morning. Um, Julia Hartley Brewer, talking of unbelievable clips, loses it mid-interview of a Palestinian MP. And we'll be discussing the Epstein documents that dropped this week. For now, though, story one In their war on Gaza, Israel has proved very capable of killing Palestinians, the majority of them civilians. On the other hand, they've proved ineffective at outlining what they actually plan for Gaza after they've bombed it to smithereens. Under US pressure, Israel's Defence Minister Yov Gallant is trying to change that. He set out a four-point plan for the Strip in a press briefing last night. The Times of Israel reports the plan as this. First, Israel will coordinate and plan an oversight role in civil governance and be responsible for inspecting incoming goods. Second, a multinational task force led by the US in partnership with European and moderate Arab nations will take responsibility for running civil affairs and the economic rehabilitation of the Strip. Third, Egypt, which is noted as a major actor in the plan, will take responsibility for the main civilian border crossing into the Gaza Strip in coordination with Israel. Fourth, existing Palestinian administrative mechanisms will be maintained, provided that the relevant officials are not affiliated with Hamas. Local authorities that currently deal with sewage, electricity, water and humanitarian aid distribution will continue to operate in collaboration with the multinational task force. Now, the role assigned to international actors in this plan is not one that any of them have asked for. We can bomb the Strip, you can rebuild it. That's what the Israelis are saying, and it's not a very attractive proposition. But in a rebuff to some of the most far-right members of Israel's cabinet, I'd say they're all pretty far-right, but the most extreme far-right members, Gallant said there will not be an Israeli civilian presence in Gaza. In other words, they have no plans to resettle the Strip. Less promising for Israel's international allies, they have said it would block, or Israel has said it would block any role for the Palestinian Authority in Gaza. That's what the US has sort of been publicly saying they want. Instead, the Times of Israel reports this. Top security officials told the Times of Israel that the transition of responsibilities to the hands of a local administration under the plan would need to be carried out gradually and not all at once, given the existing infrastructure. The officials also said that clans, local bureaucrats, government officials and even academics living in Gaza cities and refugee camps would have civil governance roles in designated areas of the Strip. 
So, in summary, the plan seems to be this. Israel will maintain security control over the Gaza Strip, including deciding what goes in and out of the Strip, as they have done um, for uh, the past over a decade. Um, The international community, for its part, will be charged with rebuilding Gaza, and a bunch of compliant Palestinians will be handpicked to do the unglamorous task of basic administration in sub-regions of the territories. The territory will be divided up and Israel will decide on which clans it's going to give control of that region to distribute um, humanitarian aid. Of course, distributing humanitarian aid, that, that to me does not sound like a plan for the long-term survival of a territory. There is nothing in this plan which suggests there is going to be a successful economy for the people of Gaza. Um, this seems more like managing a refugee camp. Aaron, what do you make of this? I mean, I suppose... Yoav Gallant is is trying to reassure um, some of his Western allies that they're not actually trying to empty the Gaza Strip, that they're not planning to resettle the Gaza Strip, whether we should take him at his word at that. Um, I don't have much confidence. But if we were to, does does what he's suggesting sound plausible to you? Well, it sounds plausible because, Michael, the political class in Europe are broadly fucking idiots. Um, we do have politicians in Europe, Michael, who will be cheering all of this on, or they've enabled it, certainly. They see no problem with what's happening in, in Gaza. Okay, they might see it going too far or it's excessive, but they have no problem in terms of the actions being taken uh, categorically. And um, the idea that we as European taxpayers, US taxpayers, will have to put our hands in our pockets to pay for the reconstruction of the, of the Gaza Strip, they think that's good. They think that's virtuous. So the Israelis can destroy it, and then we have to pay to build it. And if you say, I don't think European taxpayers should be funding the reconstruction of Gaza, well, that's a right-wing talking point. No, it's not. I don't want UK taxpayers to pay for something which the Israelis are going to demolish again in 20 years' time. I think that's perfectly sensible, actually. And I do, I do find it concerning that, really, the only people that talk in those terms, honestly, about these kinds of projects is, is sometimes the right, the US right in particular. Somebody like Tucker Carlson will say, this is dumb, we shouldn't do it. Of course we shouldn't do it. You know, we have a political class in Europe. When it comes to Israel, Palestine in particular, you know, I'm thinking of some of the Germans, von der Leyen, uh, their foreign secretary, Baerbock, you know, Schultz, but many people in this country too, in the UK, Michael, you know, Israel, green light, do what you want. We don't really think about displaced people, refugees, broader political instability. Yeah, why don't they go to Egypt? Why don't 2 million people from Gaza go to Egypt, which has 36% inflation? I'm sure that won't cause any political problems in a country which borders the Mediterranean with 100 million people. You know, they don't use their brains. They don't use their brains. It's all about who's the goodie, who's the baddie. They've decided who the baddies are. uh, And the people that always have to pick up the bill are their dummy taxpayers who they take for granted. And so I do think it's a viable solution in so much as there are idiots in Europe's political class, to a lesser extent America's, because frankly, the right over there has recalibrated the debate so much, who will pick up the Pick up the bill for this. There will certainly be Democrats who will be saying, yes, we're so good and virtuous. Let's rebuild Gaza. What? So Israel can destroy it again in 10, 20 years' time? The thing I find least plausible with this, and I've said it a number of times on this show, is this idea that you can sort of handpick a bunch of Palestinians who will administer the area, right, and that everyone will go along with that. Because even if, you know, even I think it's unlikely, right, but even if the majority of the Palestinians living in Gaza sort of wanted to say, okay, we've lost the war, um, we've now got some some Palestinians back in control of the administration. We didn't pick them, the Israelis picked them, but you know, we might as well keep our heads down um, and, and, and try and get on with it, try and get on with our lives. 
Um, it might well be the case that the majority of, of Palestinians in Gaza do um, have that approach um, when sort of the immediate fighting by Israel, the immediate massacre by Israel essentially ends. But it seems very implausible to me that there won't be at least a significant minority of the people of Gaza who are absolutely unwilling to accept that to the degree that they will do anything in their power to try and resist it. And the moment you have a significant minority of people trying to actively resist um, what's going on in Gaza, then you will start to see, you know, rockets fired into Israel. You will start to see attacks on the Israeli troops who are presumably going to be there to secure, um, well, they're taking on a security role in Gaza. That's what was suggested by Yov Galant. So if you want to stop any resistance to that, you're going to need like a, a really, really brutal police state, right? To, to stop the significant minority of people who want to resist occupation, you are going to need a really, really brutal police state. And then what will that do? That will turn off, that will make enemies of the people who went back to Gaza, or, you know, they haven't left Gaza now, but went back to their homes and sort of thought, oh, okay, let's just get our heads down uh, and get on with it. It just seems completely unbelievable to me that you could have a plan such as this and it function as anything other than an incredibly, incredibly oppressive regime. So, you know, when everyone says, oh, we're going to liberate the Gazans from Hamas, that's not what's going to happen, right? You can't have an occupying force which has just killed 22,000 people, killed loads of people's kids, right? Say, oh, well, they're going to pick some friendly people um, from your community and they're going to rule over you. Um, and, and expect there not to be a massive resistance. And when there's a massive resistance, there'll obviously be a massive um, you know, counter-response from the Israelis. So it just seems like a recipe for disaster for me. I mean, when it comes to solutions, you sort of mentioned the right there, Aaron. I think you know, there are two coherent solutions um, that, that Israel could take while you know, still maintaining itself as a Jewish state. One of them is to kick everyone out of Gaza, ethnic cleansing on a mass scale, now, there are lots of right-wingers sort of that I see online who actually want that to happen. I think Biden initially um, was quite open to that happening, right? But it would be a humanitarian catastrophe, um, and there are plenty of people in the world, myself included, who think that would be disastrous, immoral. The other coherent solution is to say, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to accept that you need to have an independent, viable Palestinian state, and then probably what that will do is it will win uh, a majority of people, a majority of the Palestinians, round to the idea that, yes, you, you, we, we can live side by side with, with Israel. Let's try and focus on having a functional economy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's kind of, you could call that the liberal idea. You've got this crazy right-wing idea, the liberal idea, and obviously you've got the, the sort of decolonial idea, which is the one state. Um, those two ideas, obviously Israel's not going to go for that. So those two ideas would be plausible. This, to me, seems like this, this middle ground that doesn't make any sense. And my worry is that the, the Israelis are putting forward this middle ground that doesn't make any sense, and they don't really mind it doesn't make any sense because they have as their backup the clearing out of the Gaza Strip. Right? They think, well, it doesn't matter if this doesn't work, because if what it leads to is an incredibly oppressive police state that's poverty-stricken, you know, then maybe, maybe more Gazans will leave. More Palestinians living in Gaza will leave of their own accord. So Israel, in a way, has these terrible incentives where they want their solution to fail. They, they have no intention of making or allowing Gaza to become uh, a successful um, part of Palestinian society. Um, the discussion about the future of Gaza comes as Israel continues to kill civilians across 
the Gaza Strip. According to the Gazan Health Ministry, 162 Palestinians were killed in the past 24 hours, bringing the total up to 22,600. And that included 14 people killed by Israeli shelling in the Al-Mawasi camp. Now, we've mentioned the Al-Mawasi camp before. That's the one small district of the Gaza Strip Israel has said was safe. So when people were getting bombed elsewhere, they were saying, oh, why don't you turn up to this really small um, piece of land that is, is going to be the only safe place in Gaza. Well, guess what? They bombed it. Rami Abdu is chair of the Euromed Human Rights Monitor. He tweeted this. So you can see this image of people in body bags. Um, the victims of the Israeli shelling in the al area, the designated evacuation zone, are identified as displaced individuals from the Abu Hatab and Salah families. Among the casualties are Mohammed Abu Hatab, his wife and their children, also affected are Jamila Mohammed Yaya Al-Qadra, 39, wife of Mohammed, along with their children, Maram, 13, Ruwa, 12, Mohammed, 9, Yazan, 8, Lamia, 8, Ahmed, 5, Lian, 5. Additional casualties, including Hamza Hamad Salah, 14, Maram Hamad Salah, 9, and Jamal Hamad Salah, 11. So you're seeing so many children affected here and entire families destroyed, which seems to be a feature, not a bug, of Israel's war on Gaza. And the logic of that campaign of wiping out entire families was explained in chilling terms this week by Israel's UK ambassador, Zippy Hotavelli. Well, I really want to mention the fact that Gaza has an underground tunnel city, and in order to get to this underground tunnel city, those areas must be destroyed. And one of the things we expose to the world <coughs> after getting into um, the areas in Gaza that we try to find all those tunnels and underground metro city that Hamas has built, thanks to this great support of Iran, Qatar, the international community, generosity, everything turned to be this horrible terror city. One of the things we realized that every school, every mosque, every second house has and access to tunnel. So this is, and, and of course, immunity. But that's an argument for so, destroying the whole of Gaza, every single building in it. So do you have another solution, how to destroy the underground tunnel city, that this is the place where the terrorists hide, where they have all their ammunition, and this is the rockets that are still fired on Israeli cities. You know how Israel started its new year? We didn't have fireworks. We had rockets instead of fireworks. Oh, you had rockets instead of fireworks. Well, Palestinians in Gaza had airstrikes. Right? Israeli airstrikes in Gaza have killed 22,000 people, over 8,000 of them children. Now, do you know how many Israelis have been killed by rocket fire from Gaza since October the 7th? Guess, take a moment. None. Zero. Nil. Right? You've got Zippy Hotavelli there saying, we are justified in destroying the entire Gaza Strip because we are seeing rockets instead of having our firework displays. They have killed no one since October the 7th. Israel's bombs have killed 22,000 people, over 8,000 of them children, right? Now, back to that clip. Ian Dale there said what Hotavelli said was an argument for destroying the whole of Gaza. And Hotavelli's response was, do you have another solution for destroying the underground tunnel city? Um, Aaron, you know, we keep seeing sort of Israeli representatives say, Things which, you know, I can really imagine being held up in court when Israel are accused of, of genocide. What else would we do apart from destroy every single building in Gaza? Which is what they're doing, by the way. Northern Gaza, um, Northern Gaza, I think, you know, we're looking at 70% plus of buildings have been either destroyed or, you know, significantly damaged. 
Um, and it's obviously that numbers are in, in, increasing all the time. In other parts of Gaza, it's increasing all the time. But Northern Gaza is the front line so far. Uh, it is amazing. And even more remarkable, Michael, is that I think maybe a month ago, we saw Zippy Hotavelli on the same platform as uh, Keir Starmer and various Labour politicians. Now, on the one hand, they would say she is somebody who's representing the Israeli state. Of course, we should be. At the same time, I find it hard to believe they would adopt the same position if an Iranian politician or a Saudi politician, or actually most countries, even countries which are allied to the UK, was saying something like that in a quote-unquote domestic anti-terror operation. This isn't an anti-terror operation. This is a war. This is a, this is a war. Um, so it does make it all the stranger, really, because what we are seeing, let's be honest about this, is unique treatment of the Israeli state and its representatives. If anybody else was saying this, they would be persona non grata, they would be condemned. But what we do in this country is that when there are um, uh, resolutions in the UN General Assembly, we, we abstain. When there are things on the Security Council, we abstain or we, we vote against them because we've chosen a side. And it's the same side as Zippy Hotavelli and what she is saying. And the biggest winner in all of this, Michael, of course, Israel is a huge winner in all this, but the biggest winner is China. You might think that's bizarre. I sound like Paul Mason or something. China, Russia. Because every single day this happens, any goodwill towards the West, any goodwill amongst billions of people in the global South, who, by the way, you know, our media in this country, they just don't exist, right? The global South doesn't exist. The international community is Europe, the US, Canada, and Australia. Nowhere else exists. We are losing goodwill and trust by the day. Not that it was particularly high in the first place, but I think people in places like Indonesia, in Brazil, in Vietnam, the, the economies that will drive transformations over the course of the rest of the century, uh, they are looking at this and thinking, wow, the people that said, the skeptics who said, when it comes to the rule of law, when it comes to human rights, it's all a lie. It's all bullshit. They don't mean it. Wow, they were right. They weren't just a little bit right. They were really right. It's good for you, but it's not good for us or our allies. We can do what we want. What the hell are you going to do about it? And that is a problem. For the US, less so, of course, because it's a major power. It's a major economic power, a major military power. But for somebody like the UK, a, a medium power, um, a great power in some sense, of course, on the Security Council and whatnot, but a medium power, economically, most certainly it is, uh, we have to find as many allies and people we can cooperate with around the world as, as we can in our own rational self-interest. I don't quite understand how tying ourselves to this maniacal genocide in Gaza helps us do that. What is it? What is happening? And this needs to be explained to me because I've not yet seen it. How is Britain's position on Israel-Palestine in Britain's interest? Forget the ethical arguments about what Israel is doing. One person explained to me, how is this in Britain's interest? I'd love to know. How is this in Britain's interest, what we're doing? How does this help us project more power overseas? Just take a purely realpolitik approach here by tying ourselves to lunatics like Hotavelli. You know, again, Michael, I talked about the media and its coverage of what's going on in Israel-Palestine. Also, let's look elsewhere in West Asia. There have been 100 attacks since October against U.S. forces um, in, uh, in Iraq and Syria. More than 100 attacks, okay? Significant numbers of attacks. You wouldn't know it, by the way. The only people that really talk about this to any extent are maybe the Wall Street Journal, Al Jazeera, Financial Times. But, like, you don't really see it in the BBC or the Times or the Guardian, really. You might see one article every few months. People are talking about, is there a war in the region? It could start. It's already started. There is a war. If you're having 100 attacks against US service personnel in Syria and Iraq since October, 
there is a war. And the Iraqi militias, who are, yes, funded and backed by Iran, are openly saying this will carry on as long as uh, the Israelis continue what they're doing in Gaza. Very clear relation, causal relationship between these two events. So again, it's not just us. What's our interest here? The US. This is crazy. This is absolutely crazy. And it's so reminiscent of Iraq and Afghanistan. There is no strategy. What is the strategy for, for the UK, the US, in West Asia? What do we want? What are the challenges? What are the guiding principles? Or what are the outcomes that we want? We don't have them. It's crazy, Michael. We have all these people in all these think tanks, and we spend billions upon billions in terms of defense. Nobody can give you a, a decent answer for that. Nobody. And the exact same politicians bang on about displaced peoples and refugees. We need to stop people coming to Europe. They're cheering on two million people in Gaza being displaced. Those people will probably go to Egypt. Egypt, like I said uh, earlier on, 35% uh, plus inflation. Two million people go there. They probably go to the Sinai. Of course, attacks will still continue. They'll be bombed. Israel starts bombing uh, Egyptian territory. What do you think happens if you have a failed state of 100 million people on the Mediterranean, like Egypt? What do you think happens? The same people cheering all this on who couldn't give a flying toss about anything I just said would condemn the millions of Egyptians coming to Western Europe. Condemn. That's all they can do. All they can do, these useless fucks on £100,000 a year with their £500 haircuts, is say, you're the goodies, you're the baddies. Will you condemn? Will you condone? They can't even do the national interest thing anymore. It's remarkable. And I think actually in a way, Hatevoli being the like I say, maniac that she is, frankly, uh, she really exposes the depravity and complete lack of insight and intelligence among Western political elites. I think the sort of how Western self-interest or the self-interest of sort of the United States or the UK comes in here is, is really interesting. We had Trita Parsi on the show on, on Wednesday, very interesting guy, sort of talking about the dangers of this sort of spreading into a regional war. I spoke to him for a lot longer yesterday for my other podcast, Crash Course, and he said something that really sort of made everything sort of slip into place, right? Which is that I listen to lots of these sort of geopolitics podcasts and they're always decrying the fact that every US president says they want to pivot to Asia. They see sort of the, the principal um, rival to the United States as China, the rise of China. And, and so they want to pivot their military resources, their, their economic might um, to that region. But they keep getting drawn back into the Middle East. They keep getting drawn back into the Middle East, a place which is not as strategic because it used to be, partly because America has shale gas. They don't rely on uh, Middle Eastern oil in the same way that they used to. So they want to stay out of the Middle East. And what on these podcasts it's often talked about is, but then they keep getting drawn into drawn into Middle East because stuff keeps happening. You know, stuff keeps happening and they just have to go there. They have to go there. And what Trita said to me is that this is not an accident, right? Because Israel, their biggest fear is the fear of abandonment that America basically says, look, you're kind of on your own. We don't have the military resources to expend here. We are going and focusing on East Asia. And the way Israel says, no, remember us, come back, come back, come back, is to constantly create problems, right? If you're constantly sort of creating tensions with Lebanon, creating tensions with Iran, um, you know, making completely unrealistic situations like this plan for Gaza, then you were saying, America, you need to come back. So it's almost this sort of, um, you know, somewhat abusive relationship where you're constantly causing problems so that they can't leave. And that seems to be what's happening here. And every time I see a sort of long-term plan by Israel, it seems in a way that sort of chaos is part of the plan. 
right? We we are not going to sit back quietly and let uh, America move its warships to, to East Asia. We're going to make sure they have to stay here. They have to expend their resources here. And it, it does seem to me to be very much against um, the national interest of the United States and the UK. And it's terrible um, for the ordinary people of the Middle East. I mean, what do you make of that, Aaron? I think you've absolutely hit the money, Michael. You've absolutely hit the money. And it's rarely explained to us. You know, Israel will fight. I think they want a regional war with Iran, okay? Because Iran really is the only power that is at odds with the US empire. It wants to develop nuclear weapons. It probably already has nuclear weapons of some kind. Just can't attach them to a ballistic missile. Has massive uh, medium-range missile capabilities, loitering munitions, drones, extraterritorial special forces. They're, they're, they're a decent power. They produce lots of steel. If you have total war, mobilization of people, 90 million people, uh, they will be a force to be reckoned with. Uh, they're not Russia or China or the US, but in that part of the world, they're a force to be reckoned with. And Israel's strategy contra Iran is they will fight Iran to the last American. They will absolutely, that's, that's the plan. We will fight you on the beaches and on the streets to the last American, right? That is the plan. And the American public needs to understand what's happening because the Democratic establishment um, and Joe Biden, they're, they're pushing through arms sales to Israel, bypassing Congress. Uh, and, and it shows to me, given what's happening, when you're doing all that still, that seemingly parts of the American establishment is on, is on side with that. They're on side with that idea that, yeah, okay, sure. Israel can have a war with Iran. Doesn't need, by the way, doesn't need to be a declaration of war. It can be a proxy war that gets really hot. Um, and, and we'll fight it to the last American. Sure, makes sense. Well, does that make sense to you? Israel will fight Iran to the last American. Oh, and by the way, Europe will get all the refugees and energy inflation. And all the clapping seals of European liberal politicians go, yes, 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 go on. And look at your high street. How much are you paying for petrol at the pump? How much are your energy bills? And you have morons, by the way, Michael. Jake Willis-Simon says, well, we shouldn't declare war in Iran, but we should have strategic strikes. Uh, he, said, he, he said this. He said this on his Twitter. We shouldn't have war in Iran. So I'm gonna, you know, he's not saying we should have war with Iran, but there should be certain you know, strategic attacks. What do you think would happen if there was war with Iran? Right? We've already seen the Red Sea basically go out of use for global logistics flows. What do you think happens if, if there's war with Iran? Whose defense doctrine partly hinges around shutting down the Strait of Hormuz. Basically, you can't get gas and petrol out of the Arabian Peninsula. Qatar, the UAE, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia. What do you think happens to global energy prices? And these people have these hot takes. They have no idea what they're talking about. No idea. But of course, write the Telegraph, write for the Times, go on Sky Papers. They have no idea. And 68 million people in this country get fucked every month they pay their energy bills. Let's move on. We will be coming back to Israel-Palestine at the end of the show. For now, though, we are in 2024, but New Year's are, of course, just an arbitrary construct. And our fundraiser is therefore still running. Um, we're looking to gain 5,000 new supporters to fund our journalism. Um, so many of you have signed up to support Truthful Independent Media so far. Let's take a look at where the count is so far. There you see, 3,942 new supporters that's people giving us a regular donation every month if you are one of them thank you so much um you may call it this possible and you mean we will be able to um, expand as the new year progresses but of course i would love to see that number pop over four thousand this weekend um so if you haven't already signed up head to navaramedia.com slash support you can sign up for as little as one pound 
per month. That link is in the description box below. Next story. Almost everyone agrees that the housing system in the UK is a mess. Renting is expensive, often damp and insecure, and getting on the property ladder is harder than ever. But there are some exceptions. The chairman of NatWest doesn't think the system is a mess, and he said this to the BBC this morning. When do you think it's going to be easier for people to get on the property ladder in this country? Well, I don't think it's that uh, difficult at the moment, but... To buy a house um, in this country? It's, well, it's, Are we living in the same country? I mean, you Are you reporting have, you from to, overseas? You have to save, uh, be, and, and that's the way it always used to be. We went through Yes, but the multiple of average earnings that buy, you require... Sorry uh, to interrupt. The multiple yes. of average earnings you require to get a house. I mean, I'm just thinking if our listeners under the age of 40 would say, have you tried buying yes. a house in a major city in this country? Yes, undoubtedly. But what we saw in the financial crisis was the risk of having people being able to borrow 100% in order to get onto the property ladder and then suffering severe falls in the equity value of their houses and having to leave and having a bad credit record, etc. So there were dangers in very, very easy access to mortgage credit. So I totally recognise that there are people who find it very difficult to start the process. They will have to save more, but that is, I think, inherent in the change in the financial system as a result of the mistakes that were made in the last global financial crisis. And we have to accept we're still living with that. So the chairman did accept that deposits on houses are higher than they used to be. But he says it was necessary to move away from 95% or 100% mortgages so we have a stable financial system. We are just being sensible after the mistakes made around, or in the run-up, I suppose, to 2007-2008, the financial crisis. What he misses, though, is this. The reason deposits are astronomical isn't because lending has got tighter, but rather because house prices have rocketed, right? A 10% deposit on a house worth 100 grand was much smaller than a 10% deposit on the same house now when it's worth half a million. A chart from the BBC made the point well. So since the year 2000, house prices have gone up by 240%. Nominal earnings have only gone up by 112%. That means the real cost of a house is double what it used to be. And that analysis is based on nationwide averages. In big cities, it's much worse. So in Hackney, where I live, house prices have gone up by a factor of seven by 700%. In 1997, the average house or flat went for £80,000 in Hackney. Now it's £550,000, more than half a million pounds. In Manchester, house prices have gone up by 481%. In the year 2000, you could buy a house in Manchester for an average price of £40,000. It will now set you back £240,000. Aaron, what was the NatWest chairman thinking Right. You can only talk in the language of credit. You might get bad credit rating. You know, it's, it's sort of ignored the, the elephant in the room, which is that houses have, have, have just increased by an astronomical amount in terms of what they actually cost. Michael, these people live in a parallel reality. You know, this guy went to Manchester Grammar School. It's not a grammar school. It's a, a fee-paying school. And then he went to Oxford, and then he worked at the Foreign Commonwealth Office, and he worked in banking in the 80s, the 90s, and I think now he plays cricket for Barnes. Uh, I don't know if you're watching or listening to this, has been to Barnes. If you go to Barnes, you'll understand why he's saying this, okay? You go, this is, wow, this is gorgeous, it's surreal. Well, got the plane's going to Heathrow, but apart from that, it's idyllic. Um, and so I can understand, you know, Stanley Tucci lives there. So if you live in, Stan in Stanley Tucci land, and you're buying your little uh, four-pound punnet of organic 
Isle of Wight tomatoes from Barnes Farmers Market every weekend, I can see why you think the, the economy is hunky-dory. Let me read some stats to you, Michael, about this. People in the late 30s and early 40s, which should, by the way, be the backbone of the labor market, are now three times more likely to rent than 20 years ago. Not 50% more likely, three times more likely. In 1990, 60% of 25 to 34-year-olds in the southeast of England were homeowners. So 60% of people, 25 to 34, were homeowners. In the southeast of England today, uh, or by 2017, I should say, that figure has fallen to 30%. So from 60%, was a majority experience, to 30%. In 1997, the most common living arrangement among 18 to 34-year-olds, and this will really shock you, among 18 to 34-year-olds, was in a couple with one or more children. That was the common living experience. The most, the number one most common living experience for people aged 18 to 34 was uh, having their own place and having one or more children. Today, most people in the uh, same age bracket, slightly younger, still live with their parents. That's the most common living condition. So clearly something quite substantial has changed, Michael. If you're saying that people in their late 30s, early 40s are three times more likely to rent than 20 years ago, 50 years ago, 20 years ago, quite recently, right? I, was, I started university 20 years ago. I'm 39. Maybe you can't tell. It's not that long ago. And now we're saying, oh, you know, nothing's changed. A lot's changed. Believe me. Listen to me as somebody who's had to enter the labor market over that period rather than this gentleman who's probably been dozing uh, after a few pims on Barnes Common after a cricket match. You know, we're, we're, and by the way, people like Howard Davies, who was senior at uh, the London School of Economics, he had to leave because, you know, they took money from Saif Gaddafi. I think he resigned in 2011 when the student movement obviously emerged. People like him are why the country is screwed. And I know people use that line all the time. This person or that person, you know, people create enemies all the time, right? You are why the country is screwed. No, people like Howard Davies are why the country is screwed. They're why the country won't be able to solve lots of problems from energy transition, uh, declining house streets, inequality, birth rates, uh, people can't afford to start families, um, small businesses, all these problems. They won't be solved as long as there are people like Howard Davies pontificating like this without having the first idea what they're talking about because they live in their little enclaves, which in no way um, reflect the broader economic and social conditions of this country. Go to Barnes, go to Barnes Farmer's Market on a Saturday. I should know. I used to sell tomatoes there, including to Stanley Tucci, and you will know what I'm talking about. I didn't know you... Um... You knew the guy. You sold him tomatoes. I didn't know him. I used to. I used to. Oh yeah, I used to sell Stanley uh, Arlo White tomatoes on a weekend. Wow. Side fabulous. hustle. Let's go on to our next story. Fifty-nine previously sealed court documents relating to paedophile Jeffrey Epstein have been released. The documents have been highly anticipated after a U.S. judge ordered them to be unsealed in December, and they name a number of Epstein's associates, mostly men. The hundreds of pages released relate to a 2015 defamation case brought by Virginia Giffray, one of Epstein's victims. She sued Epstein accomplice Ghislaine Maxwell after Maxwell publicly branded her a liar. That case was settled in Giffray's favour for an undisclosed sum thought to be millions of dollars. Maxwell is now serving a 20-year prison term for sex trafficking convictions. One of the most interesting of the documents is a record of the deposition of Joanna Schoberg, another alleged victim of 
Epstein. And her testimony once again appears to implicate disgraced royal Prince Andrew. Andrew was named in a sexual assault lawsuit brought against him by Jeffrey in 2022. He reportedly paid Jeffrey $12 million to settle that case. Afterwards, Andrew stepped back from public life and the Queen stripped him of his titles. Here's what Schoberg alleges about the prince in her deposition. Schoberg. At one point, Ghislaine told me to come upstairs, and we went into a closet and pulled out the puppet, the caricature of Prince Andrew, and brought it down. And there was a little tag on the puppet that said Prince Andrew on it. And that's when I knew who he was, lawyer. And what did the puppet look like? Schoberg. It looked like him. And she brought it down and presented it to him. And that was a great joke, because apparently it was a production from a show on BBC, and they decided to take a picture with it in which Virginia and Andrew sat on a couch they put the puppet on Virginia's lap, and I sat on Andrew's lap, and they put the puppet's hand on Virginia's breast, and Andrew put his hand on my breast, and they took a photo. Now, that puppet is thought to be one of the Prince Andrew caricatures that featured on the BBC's Spitting Image show. This is just one example of the puppets used to satirize Andrew on that program. Um, it appeared in the mid-1980s. Schoberg's deposition supports Virginia Giuffre's claim that she was sexually abused by Prince Andrew. It's, of course, an allegation Prince Andrew has always denied. And Giuffre also claimed she was abused by high-profile lawyer Alan Dershowitz. This is what the document alleges about him. One such powerful individual that Epstein forced then-minor Jane Doe, number three, to have sexual relations with was former Harvard Law professor Alan Dershowitz, a close friend of Epstein's and well-known criminal defense attorney. Epstein required Jane Doe number three to have sexual relations with Dershowitz on multiple occasions or numerous occasions while she was a minor, not only in Florida, but also on private planes in New York, New Mexico, and the US Virgin Islands. In addition to being a participant in the abuse of Jane Doe number three and other minors, Dershowitz was an eyewitness to the sexual abuse of many other minors by Epstein and several of Epstein's co-conspirators. Now, Jane Doe number three has been identified in media reports as Virginia Giuffre. But since that deposition was given, Jeffrey has withdrawn her claims against Dershowitz. In 2022, she dropped her lawsuit against the prominent lawyer, saying she may have made a mistake in her identification of him. And Dershowitz has released this statement since this latest release of documents. The documents prove my innocence. The woman who initially accused me subsequently stated that she may have misidentified me and she withdrew her lawsuit against me. I hope that all the documents are released, as I have always urged. Dershowitz also appeared on Fox News, where he made this rather bizarre argument. I understand all the feminist groups and the radicals who think this is the worst thing in the world that anybody ever had any contact with Jeffrey Epstein. Where are all those radical feminists when it comes to the Hamas rapes of young Jewish girls, sexual abuse, beheadings? They are quiet. They are silent. The incredible hypocrisy of the Me Too movement. Me too, except if you're a Jew. If, uh, and I want to have a list of all the radical feminists who are pushing hard, and I understand that, to get all these names revealed. And I want to know how many of them have ever actually condemned Hamas for the rapes that we now know occurred and the murders that occurred. How many have been silent? And how many, like the National Lawyers Guild, have actually approved of what Hamas did? So let's put this in context. Let's put this in context. The two things you were talking about have absolutely nothing to do with each other, right? It's, it's, I, I have never seen a more bizarre non sequitur, right? Let's make a, you know, I was on the Epstein list, but let's make another list, 
and it's a list of feminists who haven't condemned Hamas. What? What are you talking about? Dershowitz is set to, apparently, it's been reported that Netanyahu wants him to represent Israel in the International Court of Justice to defend them against claims of genocide. So I don't know if Dershowitz is going to be sort of putting forward arguments of that standard. I know he recently wrote in a conservative magazine, Compact, that it can't be genocide because there aren't gas chambers like in the Holocaust, which is it's not a particularly um, valid legal argument. A number of other well-known people are named in the papers, though, of course, that doesn't implicate them in any wrongdoing. In her deposition, Schoberg reports that Jeffrey Epstein told her, quote, Clinton likes them young, referring to girls. Um, that, of course, there was referring to former President Bill Clinton. Um, Schoberg, it's worth noting, says she never met or saw Clinton personally. A magician, David Copperfield, is also mentioned with Schoberg alleging, quote, he questioned me if I was aware that girls were getting paid to find other girls. Other celebrities mentioned include Michael Jackson, who Schoberg alleges she met at Epstein's Palm Spring house, but says there was no contact between them. Another document unsealed by the court is an email from Jeffrey Epstein to Ghislaine Maxwell. In it, Epstein writes this, you can issue a reward to any of Virginia's friends, acquaintances, family, that come forward and help prove her allegations are false. The strongest is the Clinton dinner and the new version in the Virgin Islands that Stephen Hawking participated in an underage orgy. And so they're discussing sort of paying people for, for evidence that can disprove Virginia Giuffre's claims. Um, Stephen Hawking mentioned there was photographed on Epstein Island in 2006 while he attended a physics conference on a neighboring Caribbean Island, I say Epstein's Island, not Epstein Island. Um, there has never been any ac accusation of wrongdoing against the late physicist. Also appearing in the documents is former US President Donald Trump. He is mentioned just four times, but no accusations are leveled against him. Ghislaine Maxwell is also mentioned in the documents 208 times. In one document, the allegations of Epstein's former household manager, Alfredo Rodriguez, are reported like this. I know she went out and took pictures in the pool because later on I would see them at the desk or at the house and nude. 99% of the time they were topless. They were European girls. Rodriguez is then asked, did they appear to be doing anything sexual? He says, yes, ma'am. And in these instances, were the girls doing sexual things with other girls? He says, yes, ma'am. And I'm still talking about the pictures on Miss Maxwell's computer. Yes, ma'am. After he left Epstein's employment, Rodriguez also testified that Maxwell threatened him, alleging that she told him never to discuss her or contact her again. So this is Alfredo Rodriguez again. She said, I forbid you that you're going to be. I will be sorry if I contact any of her friends again. She said something like, don't open your mouth or something like that. I'm a civil humble. I came as an immigrant to serve his people. And right now you feel a little, I'm 55 and I'm afraid. First of all, I don't have a job, but I'm glad this is on tape because I don't want nothing to happen to me. So clearly someone who's very scared of Ghislaine Maxwell and someone who knows about what Ghislaine Maxwell was doing. You can read between the lines what's going on there. Um, following the release of the files, Ghislaine Maxwell's lawyer, Arthur Adila, appeared on News Nation. You talk to Ghislaine almost every week. You know, is, is she going to start talking? No, 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 no. Well, she's got, I don't think she has anything to talk about, except maybe that if you look at this crime, this overall crime, it's all about men abusing women for a long period of time. A lot of men, that's what we're waiting for this list. And there's only one person in jail, a woman. 
It's not one guy behind bars for all of these yeah, crimes, this sex trafficking. She brought thing. him the women, the, well, the girl. I should well, say women, first young all, girls, right? First of all, she is absolutely unequivocally denying all of that. She always has. Hashtag me too, but for Ghislaine Maxwell, who procured underage girls for a pedophile. Um, Epstein, of course, did spend time in jail where he died by apparent suicide in 2019 after being charged with sex trafficking minors and French model Scott or French model scout, sorry, Jean-Luc Brunel. Um, that's another Epstein associate accused of sex trafficking by Giffray. Also, um, supposedly committed suicide in 2022 while in a Parisian jail cell. Um, that was after he was charged with drugging and raping a 17-year-old girl. The deaths were, to say the very least, suspicious. And another question that won't go away is whether Epstein's abuse ring had purposes other than sexual gratification. Now, according to the Daily Mail, Epstein List reignites suspicion the pedo financier was working for Mossad and blackmailing the elite with help of information he gleaned from useful idiot Prince Andrew after meeting Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak at least 36 times. Of course, Mossad is Israel's um, intelligence agency. Now, the article quotes a former Mossad operative, Ari Ben Menashe, as saying this, Prince Andrew wasn't being blackmailed, he was being used as a useful idiot. He was being used to bring in some of the celebrities. Ben Menashe worked for Israel's military intelligence directorate from 1977 to 1987, and his allegations were backed up by Epstein's former mentor, Stephen Hoffenberg, who claimed that Epstein had referred to his relationship with Prince Andrew as his Super Bowl trophy. The article goes on to say this. Epstein was introduced to the spy game by Ghislaine's father, Robert, according to Mossad agent Ben Menashe, who claims to have been the British media tycoon's handler. A friend of the Maxwell's, Laura Goldman, further stated she believed not only that Robert Maxwell was a Mossad spy, but that Ghislaine carried on his work. Robert Maxwell is a very interesting figure in all of this. Um, and like Epstein, he was subject to a mysterious, suspicious death. The Mail writes this. Um, so Robert Maxwell was said to have drowned while aboard his luxury yacht, the Lady Gallade, in Spain's Canary Islands in 1991. At the time, the tycoon was facing major financial woes, having raided $623 million from his media company, Mirror Group's pension funds, to try and cover his massive debts. Despite the scandal, he was given a hero's funeral on Israel's Mount of Olives, attended by former intelligence chiefs, the Israeli prime minister, and the Israeli president. So clearly someone very connected to Israeli intelligence um, from the mail. While police ruled out foul play in his death, theories which, of, theories which of suicide or even a potential assassination by Mossad still persist. In their book, Robert Maxwell, Israel's Super Spy, The Life and Murder of a Media Mogul, authors Gordon Thomas and Martin Dillon suggest a conflict between Maxwell's public interests and his private role as a spy are what led to his mysterious death. They believe Maxwell was helping himself to Mossad money in a bid to recoup his losses with deadly consequences. Now, I haven't read that book in question, and it's not entirely clear to me how someone would just help themselves to Mossad money. I know it's just lying around. What's undeniable, though, is that a Mossad agent would have lots of knowledge that could embarrass the organization. If Maxwell was in financial trouble, you could see why that would be a risk for Israel. When you're in financial trouble, you're vulnerable. When you're vulnerable, people might be able to get secrets out of you. And if you have lots of secrets that would be valuable to, or that would be damaging for Mossad and Israel, what's going to happen, right? What do intelligence agencies do when they lose trust in a high-value agent? Now, I'm not sure there are many limits. 
Of course, working for an intelligence agency could also have benefits. In 2007, Epstein got an extraordinarily generous plea deal after he was put on trial for sex crimes against minors. The US attorney who cut that deal was a man named Alexander Acosta. Acosta would later go on to become Donald Trump's Labour Secretary. And according to the Daily Beast, this is what went down in the run-up to that appointment. Epstein's name, I was told, had been raised by the Trump transition team when Alexander Acosta, the former US attorney in Miami, who'd infamously cut Epstein a non-prosecution plea deal back in 2007, was being interviewed for the job of Labour Secretary. The plea deal put a hard stop to a separate federal investigation of alleged sex crimes with minors and trafficking. So a great deal for Epstein. Is the Epstein case going to cause a problem for confirmation hearings, Acosta had been asked. Acosta had explained breezily, apparently, that back in the day, he'd had just one meeting on the Epstein case. He'd cut the non-prosecution deal with one of Epstein's attorneys because he had been told to back off that Epstein was above his pay grade. I was told Epstein belonged to intelligence and to leave it alone, he told his interviewers in the Trump transition, who evidently thought that, what was a, that that was a sufficient answer and went ahead and hired Acosta. Now, the Labour Department had no comment when asked about this. Wow. Right, as saying, uh, the plea deal, the extraordinarily generous plea deal, um, apparently here, Alexander Acosta told the Trump transition committee, oh yeah, that they told me he was intelligent, so to back off. But, wow. That's from Vicky Ward, who's actually written a lot of really good articles on Epstein. She's got one in, in Rolling Stone that I read just before we went live, which is definitely worth checking out. Jeffrey Epstein, therefore, certainly appears to be well-connected to American intelligence. He is known to have met with the current head of the CIA, Bill Burns, on multiple occasions. Um, that was in 2014, so long after it became apparent that he was involved in sex crimes. And according to his brother, Epstein had significant compromise on leading US politicians, including Trump and Hillary Clinton. On Wednesday, um, Epstein's brother told this um, to the New York Post. Here's a direct quote, so from Jeffrey Epstein. If I said what I know about both candidates, they'd have to cancel the election. That's what Jeffrey told me in 2016. So we have clear links between Ghislaine Maxwell, her father, Epstein, and Mossad, and evidence that the information Epstein gathered gave him real leverage over politicians in the United States. Now, is that how he got away with his crimes? Or is that why he was doing his crimes in the first place? Right. Is this what this was all about? He was collecting compromise for various intelligence agencies. Well, last year, the Rumble host, Kim Everson, put the Mossad allegations to Alan Dershowitz. Many of us suspect that uh, Jeffrey Epstein was an asset to Mossad and that uh, Ghislaine Maxwell was, uh, in fact, an agent of Mossad. This is, there's a lot totally of evidence that point to this direction. And that no, they were, no they were operating a blackmail operation in yeah. order to get very powerful people, including people like yourself, uh, on in precarious positions to where you could potentially work on behalf of the state of Israel or protect the well, state I work, of Israel. I've been working on the state of Israel. I've been working for the state of Israel since before you were born. Um, Jeffrey Epstein once visited me in Israel. He had never been there. He didn't know anybody in Israel. Um, he didn't work for the Mossad. The Mossad wouldn't hire him. And uh, I hope he had uh, videotapes of everybody because they would show I never did anything uh, improper. Uh, I have one other question. Uh, are you used to having people come on your show to talk about one subject and then sandbagging them on another subject without 
any warning because it's nice to know you do that and it will be make certain that I am nothing to hide. I'm happy to talk about any of this, but I'm Actually, used to um, we, more ethical journalism. No, we actually did notify the people who booked you onto the show that you would be asked about Epstein, and they assured us that you were aware no, of No, they this. never notified me about that, and you'd have to show me that email. Okay. Uh, one last question. Do you think that Jeffrey Epstein killed himself? No, uh, of course not. Uh, well, he didn't kill himself without the help of uh, some people. He'd kill himself, but he killed himself with the help of uh, guards. He didn't do it by himself. He couldn't have done that, obviously, though. The um, videos were turned off, and um, um, and the uh, um, uh, guards uh, turned their back, and his cellmate left. So I think he killed himself, but he killed himself with the assistance of uh, some people in in law enforcement. That's a great last question. I really got a lot of him on that last question. Aaron, what do you make of all of this? Sort of these, you know, when this is covered in the mainstream media in, in the UK, at least, it, it's nearly always just sort of, oh, how embarrassing for Prince Andrew. But mm -hmm. it does seem like potentially we can sort of understand a bit more about how intelligence agencies and power and social connections between elites works by sort of looking at this case. Obviously, you know, lots of it is somewhat speculative, but it does seem like there is a fair amount of circumstantial evidence that, that intelligence agencies were involved um, in sort of the Epstein ring. I mean, the Epstein story is extraordinary. It's an extraordinary story. And like you say, in the UK, somewhat understandably, we're viewing it entirely through the prism of Prince Andrew. Of course, he's one of the most high-profile names associated with this. Some say the favoured son of the of the previous monarch, Elizabeth II. Um, so that's understandable. But still, I think it can sometimes undermine what's happened here. Let's get to first facts here. You know, the New York Times last year wrote that the estate that Epstein left behind was valued at $600 million. $600 million. This was a guy without a degree. He'd started a mathematics degree at NYU, never completed it. He'd worked for Bear Stearns, very junior role. He'd done like consulting and he'd done this and he'd been involved in like a hedge fund, but nobody really knew what this guy did for a job. And when he died, he left 600 million pounds that we know of. That we know of. Um, there was stuff uh, before the global financial crisis saying that he was worth about a billion and at the time, people were saying, oh, it's, it's all kind of not really real. It's not fake. It's all front. You know, um, like people say about Trump or like people say about Elon Musk, it's equity in these overpriced, stock in these overpriced businesses. It's not real money. He's left assets worth 600 million pounds. Obviously, that's winding down because of legal costs and whatnot, uh, but 600 million pounds. And one of the primary beneficiaries of his estate was his most recent girlfriend. Um, so... This is another layer to all of this, Michael, is this guy knew everybody. He was able to entrap so many powerful people. Nobody really knows where his money came from. Uh, some people have asserted that really he got particularly wealthy after his relationship with uh, Robert Maxwell. But of course, Robert Maxwell had his own uh, problems. But when you hear that, alarm bells should go off. And like you say, it is circumstantial, Michael. Uh, this person made allegedly tremendous amounts of money after coming into contact with Robert Maxwell. Robert Maxwell, who allegedly had contact with certain uh, security agencies. It is, it is strange. It is strange. And I think it actually says something quite significant about early 21st century sort of liberal politics that, you know, he was welcomed into, he was giving money to Harvard. He was a big funder of Harvard. He was in the Trilateral Commission. I'm not making any um, suggestions about what that means or there being a big conspiracy. These are very powerful mainstream organizations, institutions. He was 
close to Bill Clinton. He repeatedly visited the White House. Uh, this was a serious person, taken seriously, seen as a big patron of the arts and good causes. And nobody sort of thought, well, where's the money coming from? Because you know, $600 million is a lot of cash. And you can work on the assumption he lost a significant amount during the global financial crisis. Many people, of course, did in the financial services industries. And look, it's almost like you take away Prince Andrew and there is an even better story here, bigger story here. Uh, going back to what Dershowitz was saying, I mean, that's just, it was an interesting answer, right? Um, I, I find it not particularly credible um, that in that environment, you would ask guards to turn their backs, turn off the camera, your cellmate leaves, and then you kill yourself. Maybe. I mean, he made his, he made his last will days before his death, as I understand it. Uh, who knows? We can speculate. It's something I think in uh, 2024, I want to cover a lot more here at Navarro Media, Michael. You know, Ghislaine Maxwell, Robert Maxwell, uh, and Jeffrey Epstein, because it really underscores the very ad hoc nature of how a global elites talk to one another. You know, Bill Gates would hang out there and Prince Andrew and he'd be pals with Bill Clinton. And we like to look at power as systemic. Um, we like to look at power, of course it is in, in many ways, and operating very rationally when at an elite level. But on the other hand, actually, lots of the people have no idea what they're doing. They are charmed by somebody with charisma or who they think is wealthy. Um, and I think that, to me, is why Epstein is so interesting. You know, our elite like to think they're so much smarter than us, so much more psychologically attuned than we are, emotionally intelligent than we are. Uh, I think there's an argument for the opposite, frankly. The most interesting parts are only really covered by the tabloids. Like, I, I feel like the sort of respectable press doesn't really want to go near this, even though you've got you know, quite quite credible people um, saying that he was uh, an asset for Mossad. Right? Um, really good article, as I said, by in Rolling Stone was Jeffrey Epstein a spy? I recommend giving it a read. Um, final story of the evening: Mustafa Barghouti is a leading Palestinian physician and politician who is an MP in the Palestinian Legislative Council. He's also head of the Palestinian National Initiative. That's a secular democratic socialist party. But according to Julia Hartley Brewer, this man warrants zero respect. Here she's conducting a pretty disgraceful interview with Barghouti, where they discussed the recent assassination by Israel of a Hamas leader in Beirut. It's a good thing when terrorist leaders are assassinated, isn't it? No, it is not, because they are not terrorist leaders. And I am so surprised that you are encouraging the assassination of political people. I'm encouraging and, uh, the assassination encouraging, of encouraging, people who... Encouraging, encouraging, wait a minute, let me answer, please. Mm -hmm. You are encouraging the violation of international law. Not only Israel is assassinating a Palestinian leader and uh, provoking a reaction for sure, and but more than that, they are doing that on the land of another country, in Lebanon, uh, insulting the, 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 the Lebanese government, the Lebanese security structure mm -hmm. and insulting the Lebanese people. So I just want to clarify. No, can I just clarify? You think it's terrible that it, everyone assumes it's Israel, that Israel went into another country and killed somebody, and that yes, that would provoke a reaction. Um, did you make the same comments about the October 7th massacre? Did Wait you also minute. condemn Hamas Is for it? entering Israeli territory, provoking reaction from Israel I, uh, and killing innocent people? 
Do you condemn that Israel is occupying us since 1967? Do you condemn that Israel is practicing ethnic cleansing against Palestinian people since 75 years? Do you condemn that Israel has evicted 70% of the Palestinian people from their land, erasing to the ground 520 Palestinian towns and villages? Okay. Condemn that. And then I'll answer. She won't condemn it because she doesn't understand it. Right, Julie Hartley Brewer never talks about the fact that Palestine has been occupied since 19, or the Palestinian territories, the occupied Palestinian territories have been occupied since 1967. She never acknowledges the ethnic cleansing that's going on, right? And you can see that actually by the comparison she made, because when Israel takes out a Hamas leader in Beirut, they are entering sort of an independent sovereign country, right? Lebanon has nothing to do with Israel, right? When Hamas enter Israel, now, Obviously, killing civilians is, is, is wrong, right? Killing civilians is wrong. But when Palestinians enter Israel, you know, that, that's not a foreign country, right? Israel is occupying the Palestinian territories. You're not going across an international border when you go from Gaza to Israel because there aren't two states, right? If Israel had agreed to a two-state solution where you had a viable Palestine, a viable independent Palestine, then when you cross from Gaza into, well, it would have been Palestine, wouldn't it? When you cross from Palestinian territories, occupied Palestinian territories, into Israel, then you would be crossing a foreign border. But you're not at the moment because they aren't two independent countries. There is an occupying power, Israel, and people who are being occupied. So those aren't international borders that actually make much sense, right? So it's it's not an analysis that really works. It speaks to someone who doesn't understand what they're talking about. Now, as you can imagine, there was then a very long standoff about whether the Palestinian politician would condemn Hamas. I really thought we were past this. Um, and then this happened. The way out of this is not to provoke another war with Lebanon. That's what Netanyahu wants. That's, by the way, against the will of many Israelis. Yes, who don't want the, to see their but soldier, the, the but the interesting thing is that Israelis who disagree with their government Netanyahu, are able to do so in a democratic country, which of course this, this doesn't exist anywhere else uh, in the Middle East. Okay, you say you don't approve. And of, do you think that Israel is a democratic country? I Netanyahu know that Israel is a democracy. They have elections. No, this man is now uh, has three, four courts against him because yes. of four cases of I know. corruption. This man knows okay. if the war we have, stops... We haven't got time to do the entire history of Benjamin Netanyahu, who is not a popular not figure in Israel. This is, this is, I'm not, I'm not here to defend Benjamin Netanyahu. Mustafa, is it whenever, possible to... Whenever I speak... Right. Whenever I speak about Palestinian rights or no. Palestinian situation, you, you claim it is history. I'm talking about what's happening today. No, I know, and this I'm trying... This is not history. Can we... Can we just... You you said you talked about how you don't want Israel. Israel, you're saying Israel that October the seventh happened. You're placing that in historical context. I understand that. Please don't say that again. We don't have time for it. You've made that point five times already. I don't okay. know what you have time for. Oh my for. God! Let me for for the love of God, let me finish a sentence, man. I don't. Maybe you're not used to women talking. I don't know, but I'd like to finish a sentence, sir. Anyway. So, no, you are misleading the public now really? by claiming Right, I've got 20 seconds left. I'm not even going to bother trying and to answer. Um, if you don't think Israel's reaction is acceptable, what would have been an acceptable reaction to you? You've got 10 seconds left. To end occupation and allow peace to prevail for both people. That's their reaction. Brilliant. Yeah. Sorry to have you know, been a woman speaking to you, but there you are. Sorry to have been a woman speaking to you. Right, that was very unprofessional, whatever she had sort of said. But the implication that he is upset, that he's not respecting her as a host, 
because she is a woman. I mean, it can't be anything other than racist, right? That cannot be anything other than racist. He did not say anything remotely misogynistic or sexist. He didn't in no way imply that he was disrespecting Julia Hartley Brewer as, as a woman. And to be honest, he didn't even seem disrespectful, right? He was saying, I want to give these answers. I want to talk about the fact that this didn't start on October the 7th. I want to talk about the occupation and the discrimination, the apartheid, which Palestinian people suffer, because he probably knows that Julia Hartley Brewer never talks about that on her goddamn show, right? So he is trying to put forward his view. This is a respectable, respected, actually, significant politician in Palestine. And she, because he doesn't want to go down her stupid garden path questions, accuses him of sexism. Aaron, I mean, that was... By the way, they also put that out as a clip. They were proud of that. Mm. Right, Talk TV put that out as a clip. So they thought speaking like that to a prominent Palestinian politician was 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 something to be celebrated. Well, that's why these people like Julia Hartley Brewer or, or that Mike gentleman who thinks you can grow concrete, uh, that's why they'll never get the numbers that somebody like Piers Morgan will get because as belligerent and as annoying as he can be, he will also sometimes listen to points of view which he doesn't agree with made by other people. Not all the time, but sometimes. And it makes for good TV, and it helps you build a bigger audience. Uh, surprise, surprise. On some of the substantial points there, Michael, it seems to me that she's tacitly saying that extrajudicial killings are fine. She seems to be saying that. I mean, I don't know. The way it's phrased, she was asking maybe a rhetorical question. She didn't appear to like his answer. Um, remember, after the Second World War, we gave the Nazi leadership, the people that led the Third Reich, responsible for starting a war that killed tens of millions of people, responsible for the Holocaust, we, we gave them trials. They had the right to a trial. Um, there were even certain presumptions around their status until uh, the outcome had been decided through a legal process. So I, I, I don't quite understand. Does she think that some Hamas leader, some alleged Hamas leader in Lebanon is somehow worse than the people that led the Third Reich? Obviously not. Uh, extrajudicial killings are a very bad idea because very often you, you'll kill people who've done nothing wrong. Um, we see that in uh, with the US, in Afghanistan, in a bunch of places. It's not a smart way to operate. And you can't say, rules-based system, global order, uh, rule of law, and then say, oh, yeah, extrajudicial killings, that's fine. Go and assassinate people on the streets. Go blow up their house. That's fine. That doesn't mean you then side with the guy. And of course, this is how our brain works. That doesn't mean you then side with the guy. He's a great guy. I love the guy. No, you just say the principle of extrajudicial assassinations is, is not one I'm going to defend. No. Um, and then secondly, like you say, Michael, about this uh, territory, you know, we have to be very clear about this. On October 7th, Hamas didn't enter Israeli territory from a sovereign country. You've, you've made this point already very lucidly. But I think this is so key. And like you say, it underscores the fact she has no idea what she's talking about. You know, I had this conversation with uh, Michelle Jubril on GB News, who, by the way, is a much better host than um, Julie Harley Brewer. She will listen to people she disagrees with, and you can see her thinking about stuff she's not heard before or she, you know, she might not agree with. And she said, well, if you were an Israeli, how would you feel about living next to people that want to kill you? How would you feel? And I, okay, well, I, I'm not that. Let me put my, myself in their shoes. I would want a secure, internationally recognized border. You might want to militarize it, fine. But I definitely would want a solid, internationally recognized border. That's precisely what they're not doing. Oh, how would you feel if somebody wants to kill you? Well, I certainly wouldn't be an illegal settler in the West Bank. They want to kill me. Okay, I'll go live next to them. Give me a break. And by the way, of course, most people in the West Bank don't want to kill anybody. They just want to get on with their lives, like most people. Uh, so I think you're right to say that this shows a fundamental literacy on the part of Julie Hartley Brewer. And, that, and that's fine, look, as journalists, all of us don't know certain things. And the point is, 
you can be open to different points of view, which is clearly not. And like I say, even somebody like Piers Morgan at Talk TV, um, and it's not a left-right thing. This is not a left-right thing. It's just some people are open-minded and they tend to produce good media. By the way, Michael, that's why you're knocking out of the park with Navarro Live. That's why Navarro Live, with very few resources on YouTube, I think we have like 80,000 fewer subscribers than Talk TV, which is backed by a billionaire. Uh, I think that says something about the caliber of these people, like Julie Hartley Brew, et cetera, and their lack of curiosity. It's not good TV about this idea of, um, of him being a, a misogynist. I find this so remarkable coming from Julia Hartley Brewer of all people because she would be the first to say, don't use the women card or the race card. The second she's in a discussion with a guy she doesn't seem to like or agree with, she's saying he's a misogynist. My read on this is, and I could be wrong, is that she came at it with a certain tone and he met her. That's all. That's what people do, by the way. If you ever want to de-escalate an argument, do the opposite. Calm down. Lower the tone of your voice. Speak very short sentences, speak in very short sentences, you know, seem like you're listening. The other person will calm down. Equally, if you, if you start screaming and shouting, they'll, they'll go to your level. And I think that's, I don't think he's screaming or shouting, but she was being very um, abrasive and confrontational, as is her right. That's TV. You can do what you like. You're the host. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it doesn't work, but whatever. And he met her where she was. And of course, because he does that and he makes the point he makes, well, of course. He must be a misogynist. And she's making that argument, seemingly, like you say, because he's an Arab. Would she, would she say that to a man uh, from her own culture? Would she say that to a white British guy? I don't know. I mean, she'd have to answer that herself. It doesn't make for good journalism, and it certainly doesn't look professional. It certainly doesn't look professional. Uh, we haven't mentioned the floods. Um, so if you are being flooded right now, you've got damp carpet, uh, our solidarity to you. We'll see how this develops over the weekend. Um, Aaron, it has been a pleasure um, having you with me this Friday evening. Great show, Michael. Look, it's, uh, it's the 5th of January and already we're flying. It's going to be a great year for Navarro Media. I think we're going to turn the tide when it comes to political journalism in this country. So I'm always very grateful for our audience for tuning in and making that possible, Michael. I wish them all a wonderful weekend. Hear, hear. Um, thanks to all of you for tuning in. We'll be back on Monday. For now, you've been watching Navarro Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarro Media. Go to navarromedia.com slash support.